Chapter Nine: Eighty Years and More. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Eighty Years and More by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Chapter Nine: The First Woman's Rights Convention. In the spring of 1847, we moved to Seneca Falls. Here we spent sixteen years of our married life, and here our other children, two sons and two daughters, were born. Just as we were ready to leave Boston, Mr. and Mrs. Eaton and their two children arrived from Europe, and we decided to go together to Johnstown, Mr. Eaton being obliged to hurry to New York on business, and Mr. Stanton to remain still in Boston a few months. At the last moment, my nurse decided she could not leave her friends and go so far away. Accordingly, my sister and I started by rail with five children and seventeen trunks for Albany, where we rested overnight and part of the next day. We had a very fatiguing journey, looking after so many trunks and children, for my sister's children persisted in standing on the platform at every opportunity, and the younger ones would follow their example. This kept us constantly on the watch. We were thankful when safely landed once more in the old homestead in Johnstown, where we arrived at midnight. As our beloved parents had received no warning of our coming, the whole household was aroused to dispose of us. But now in safe harbor, mid familiar scenes and pleasant memories, our slumbers were indeed refreshing. How rapidly one throws off all care and anxiety under the parental roof, and how at sea one feels, no matter what the age may be, when the loved ones are gone forever, and the home of childhood is but a dream of the past. After a few days of rest, I started alone for my new home, quite happy with the responsibility of repairing a house and putting all things in order. I was already acquainted with many of the people and the surroundings in Seneca Falls, as my sister, Mrs. Bayard, had lived there several years, and I had frequently made her long visits. We had quite a magnetic circle of reformers, too, in central New York. At Rochester were William Henry Channing, Frederick Douglass, the Anthonys, Post, Hallowell, Stebbins, and some grand old Quaker families at Farmington, the Sedgwicks, Mays, Mills, and Matilda Jocelyn Gage at Syracuse, Garrett Smith at Peterborough, and Beriah Green at Whitesboro. The house we were to occupy had been closed for some years and needed many repairs, and the grounds comprising five acres were overgrown with weeds. My father gave me a check and said with a smile, You believe in woman's capacity to do and dare. Now go ahead and put your place in order. After a minute survey of the premises and due consultation with one or two sons of Adam, I set the carpenters, painters, paper hangers, and gardeners at work, built a new kitchen and woodhouse, and in one month took possession. Having left my children with my mother, there were no impediments to a full display of my executive ability. In the purchase of brick, timber, paint, etc., and in making bargains with workmen, I was in frequent consultation with Judge Sackett and Mr. Bascom. The latter was a member of the Constitutional Convention, then in session in Albany, and as he used to walk down whenever he was at home to see how my work progressed, we had long talks, sitting on boxes in the midst of tools and shavings, on the status of women. I urged him to propose an amendment to Article Two, Section 3 of the State Constitution, striking out the word male, which limits the suffrage to men. But while he fully agreed with all I had to say on the political equality of women, he had not the courage to make himself the laughing-stock of the convention. Whenever I cornered him on this point, manlike, he turned the conversation to the painters and carpenters. 
However, these conversations had the effect of bringing him into the first woman's convention, where he did us good service. In Seneca Falls, my life was comparatively solitary, and the change from Boston was somewhat depressing. There, all my immediate friends were reformers. I had near neighbors, a new home with all the modern conveniences, and well-trained servants. Here, our residence was on the outskirts of the town, roads very often muddy, and no sidewalks most of the way. Mr. Stanton was frequently from home. I had poor servants and an increasing number of children. To keep a house and grounds in good order, purchase every article for daily use, keep the wardrobes of half a dozen human beings in proper trim, take the children to dentists, shoemakers, and different schools, or find teachers at home, altogether made sufficient work to keep one brain busy, as well as all the hands I could impress into the service. Then, too, the novelty of housekeeping had passed away, and much that was once attractive in domestic life was now irksome. I had so many cares that the company I needed for intellectual stimulus was a trial rather than a pleasure. There was quite an Irish settlement at a short distance, and continual complaints were coming to me that my boys threw stones at their pigs, cows, and the roofs of their houses. This involved constant diplomatic relations in the settlement of various difficulties, in which I was so successful that at length they constituted me a kind of umpire in all their own quarrels. If a drunken husband was pounding his wife, the children would run for me. Hastening to the scene of action, I would take Patrick by the collar, and much to his surprise and shame, make him sit down and promise to behave himself. I never had one of them offer the least resistance, and in time they all came to regard me as one having authority. I strengthened my influence by cultivating good feeling. I lent the men papers to read, and invited their children into our grounds, giving them fruit, of which we had abundance, and my children's old clothes, books, and toys. I was their physician also. With my box of homeopathic medicines, I took charge of the men, women, and children in sickness. Thus the most amicable relations were established, and in any emergency these poor neighbors were good friends, and always ready to serve me. But I found police duty rather irksome, especially when called out dark nights to prevent drunken fathers from disturbing their sleeping children, or to minister to poor mothers in the pangs of maternity. Alas, alas, who can measure the mountains of sorrow and suffering endured in unwelcome motherhood in the abodes of ignorance, poverty, and vice, where terror-stricken women and children are the victims of strong men frenzied with passion and intoxicating drink? Up to this time life had glided by with comparative ease, but now the real struggle was upon me. My duties were too numerous and varied and none sufficiently exhilarating or intellectual to bring into play my higher faculties. I suffered with mental hunger, which, like an empty stomach, is very depressing. I had books, but no stimulating companionship. To add to my general dissatisfaction at the change from Boston, I found that Seneca Falls was a malarial region, and in due time all the children were attacked with chills and fever, which, under homeopathic treatment in those days, lasted three months. The servants were afflicted in the same way. Cleanliness, order, the love of the beautiful and artistic all faded away in the struggle to accomplish what was absolutely necessary from hour to hour. Now I understood, as I never had before, how women could sit down and rest in the midst of general disorder. Housekeeping under such conditions was impossible. So I packed our clothes, locked up the house, 
and went to that harbor of safety, home, as I did ever after in stress of the weather. I now fully understood the practical difficulties most women had to contend with in the isolated household, and the impossibility of woman's best development if in contact, the chief part of her life, with servants and children. Four years, Falsonstery community life and cooperative households had a new significance for me. Emerson says, quote, A healthy discontent is the first step to progress. Unquote. The general discontent I felt with woman's portion as wife, mother, housekeeper, physician, and spiritual guide, the chaotic conditions into which everything fell without her constant supervision, and the wearied, anxious look of the majority of women impressed me with a strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs of society in general, and of women in particular. My experience at the world's anti-slavery convention, all I had read of the legal status of women, and the oppression I saw everywhere, together swept across my soul, intensified now by many personal experiences. It seemed as if all the elements had conspired to impel me to some onward step. I could not see what to do or where to begin. My only thought was a public meeting for protest and discussion. In this tempest-tossed condition of mind, I received an invitation to spend the day with Lucretia Mott at Richard Hunt's in Waterloo. There I met several members of different families of friends, earnest, thoughtful women. I poured out that day the torrent of my long-accumulating discontent with such vehemence and indignation that I stirred myself, as well as the rest of the party, to do and dare anything. My discontent, according to Emerson, must have been healthy, for it moved us all to prompt action, and we decided, then and there, to call a woman's rights convention. We wrote the call that evening, and published it in the Seneca County Courier the next day, the 14th of July, 1848, giving only five days' notice, as the convention was to be held on the 19th and 20th. The call was inserted without signatures, in fact, it was a mere announcement of a meeting, but the chief movers and managers were Lucretia Mott, Mary Ann McClintock, Jane Hunt, Martha C. Wright, and myself. The convention, which was held two days in the Methodist Church, was in every way a grand success. The house was crowded at every session, the speaking good, and a religious earnestness dignified all the proceedings. These were the hasty initiative steps of, quote, the most momentous reform that had yet been launched on the world, the first organized protest against the injustice which had brooded for ages over the character and destiny of one half the race, unquote. No words could express our astonishment on finding a few days afterward that what seemed to us so timely, so rational, so sacred, should be a subject for sarcasm and ridicule to the entire press of the nation. With our Declaration of Rights and Resolutions for a text, it seemed as if every man who could wield a pen prepared a homily on women's sphere. All the journals from Maine to Texas seemed to strive with each other to see which could make our movement appear the most ridiculous. The anti-slavery papers stood by us manfully, and so did Frederick Douglass, both in the convention and in his paper, The North Star. But so pronounced was the popular voice against us in the parlor, press, and pulpit that most of the ladies who had attended the convention and signed the declaration one by one withdrew their names and influence and joined our persecutors. 
our friends gave us the cold shoulder and felt themselves disgraced by the whole proceeding if i had had the slightest premonition of all that was to follow that convention i fear i should not have had the courage to risk it and i must confess it was with fear and trembling that i consented to another one month afterward in rochester fortunately the first one seemed to have drawn all the fire and of the second but little was said but we had set the ball in motion and now in quick succession conventions were held in ohio indiana massachusetts pennsylvania and in the city of new york and have been kept up nearly every year since the most noteworthy of the early conventions were those held in massachusetts in which such men as garrison phillips channing parker and emerson took part it was one of these that first attracted the attention of mrs john stuart mill and drew from her pen that able article on the enfranchisement of woman in the westminster review of october eighteen fifty two the same year of the convention the married woman's property bill which had given rise to some discussion on woman's rights in new york had passed the legislature this encouraged action on the part of women as the reflection naturally arose that if the men who make the laws were ready for some onward step surely the women themselves should express some interest in the legislation ernestine l ross paulina wright davis and i had spoken before committees of the legislature years before demanding equal property rights for women we had circulated petitions for the married woman's property bill for many years and so also had the leaders of the dutch aristocracy who desired to see their lifelong accumulations descend to their daughters and grandchildren rather than pass into the hands of the dissipated thriftless sons-in-law judge hertel judge fine and mr geddes of syracuse prepared and championed the several bills at different times before the legislature hence the demands made in the convention were not entirely new to the reading and thinking public of new york the first state to take any action on the question as new york was the first state to put the word male in her constitution in seventeen seventy eight it was fitting that she should be the first in more liberal legislation the effect of the convention on my own mind was most salutary the discussions had cleared my ideas as to the primal steps to be taken for woman's enfranchisement and the opportunity of expressing myself fully and freely on a subject i felt so deeply about was a great relief i think all women who attended the convention felt better for the statement of their wrongs believing that the first step had been taken to right them soon after this i was invited to speak at several points in the neighborhood one night in the quaker meeting-house at farmington i invited as usual discussion and questions when i had finished we all waited in silence for a long time at length a middle-aged man with a broad-brimmed hat arose and responded in a sing-song tone all i have to say is if a hen can crow let her crow emphasizing crow with an upward inflection on several notes of the gamut the meeting adjourned with mingled feelings of surprise and merriment i confess that i felt somewhat chagrined in having what i considered my unanswerable arguments so summarily disposed of and the serious impression i had made on the audience so speedily dissipated the good man intended no disrespect as he told me afterward he simply put the whole argument in a nutshell let a woman do whatever she can with these new duties and interests and a broader outlook on human life my petty domestic annoyances gradually took a subordinate place now i began to write articles for the press letters to conventions held in other states and private letters to friends to arouse them to thought on this question 
The pastor of the Presbyterian Church, Mr. Bogue, preached several sermons on the woman's fear, criticizing the action of the conventions in Seneca Falls and Rochester. Elizabeth McClintock and I took notes and answered them in the county papers. Gradually we extended our labors and attacked our opponents in the New York Tribune, whose columns were open to us in the early days, Mr. Greeley being at that time one of our most faithful champions. In answering all the attacks, we were compelled to study canon and civil law, constitutions, Bibles, science, philosophy, and history, sacred and profane. Now my mind, as well as my hands, was fully occupied, and instead of mourning as I had done over what I had lost in leaving Boston, I tried in every way to make the most of life in Seneca Falls. Seeing that elaborate refreshments prevented many social gatherings, I often gave an evening entertainment without any. I told the young people whenever they wanted a little dance or a merry time to make our house their rallying point, and I would light up and give them a glass of water and some cake. In that way we had many pleasant informal gatherings. Then, in imitation of Margaret Fuller's conversationals, we started one which lasted several years. We selected a subject each week on which we all read and thought, each in turn preparing an essay ten minutes in length. These were held at different homes, Saturday of each week. On coming together we chose a presiding officer for the evening, who called the meeting to order, and introduced the essayist. That finished, he asked each member in turn what he or she had read or thought on the subject, and if any had criticisms to make on the essay. Everyone was expected to contribute something. Much information was thus gained, and many spicy discussions followed. All the ladies, as well as the gentlemen, presided in turn, and so became familiar with parliamentary rules. The evening ended with music, dancing, and a general chat. In this way we read and thought over a wide range of subjects, and brought together the best minds in the community. Many young men and women who did not belong to what was considered the first circle, for in every little country village there is always a small clique that constitutes the aristocracy, had the advantages of a social life otherwise denied them. I think that all who took part in this conversation club would testify to its many good influences. I had three quite intimate young friends in the village who spent much of their spare time with me, and who added much to my happiness. Francis Hoskins, who was principal of the girls' department in the academy, with whom I had discussed politics and religion, Mary Bascom, a good talker on the topics of the day, and Mary Crowninshield, who played well on the piano. As I was very fond of music, Mary's coming was always hailed with delight. Her mother, too, was a dear friend of mine, a woman of rare intelligence, refinement, and conversational talent. She was a Schuyler, and belonged to the Dutch aristocracy in Albany. She died suddenly, after a short illness. I was with her in the last hours, and held her hand until the gradually fading spark of life went out. Her son is Captain A.S. Crowninshield of our Navy. My nearest neighbors were a very agreeable, intelligent family of sons and daughters, but I always felt that the men of that household were given to domineering. As the mother was very amiable and self-sacrificing, the daughters found it difficult to rebel. One summer, after general house-cleaning, when fresh paint and paper had made even the kitchen look too dainty for the summer invasion of flies, the queens of the household decided to move the somber cook-stove into a spacious wood-house, where it maintained its dignity one week, in the absence of the head of the home. 
The mothers and daughters were delighted with the change, and wondered why they had not made it before during the summer months. But their pleasure was short-lived. Father and sons rose early the first morning after his return and moved the stove back to its old place. When the wife and daughters came down to get their breakfast, for they did all their own work, they were filled with grief and disappointment. The breakfast was eaten in silence, the women humbled with a sense of their helplessness, and the men gratified with a sense of their power. These men would probably all have said, Home is woman's sphere, though they took the liberty of regulating everything in her sphere. End of chapter 9